I want to start it this morning with a little game of would you rather, okay? Some of you guys know this game pretty well. If you've got tweens or teen kids, maybe they say, oh, dad, would you rather eat this gross thing or this other gross thing, right? And you have to make a difficult decision. So just with your neighbor here, I'm going to give you three situations. And your goal is to say which out of those two uh, options that I give you in each of those, would you rather do? So just talk to your neighbor. You don't have to shout it out loud. So here's your first situation. Would you rather, okay? You've got a big home renovation project to do. It's beyond your skill level and you have to hire it out. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. Uh, so would you rather hire the builder who has the reputation for the most skill in town or would you rather hire the one who has the reputation for being the most honest? Okay, go talk to your neighbor. What's your, would you rather? Which one would you rather? Okay. You guys are quieter than the first group. Okay, this is the second one. Here's your second scenario. This one's inspired by Pastor Mark here. This is maybe his dream. It says, you are on a professional soccer team. Only Mark would dream of that, right? And you have to choose a team captain before you compete in the World Cup. Would you rather vote for the most talented striker who's famous for bending those corner kicks just right, but who's also famous for being a little bit unscrupulous on the field? Or would you rather vote for the one who's not as famous, but who is the living embodiment of good sportsmanship? Okay, talk to your neighbor. What's your rather? Okay, get a little more volume here, that's good. Last, last scenario here, okay? You're a lawyer this time, and maybe you are a lawyer in real life, I don't know. But you have to choose one of two witnesses to put on the stand. Would you rather choose the one who dresses well, speaks eloquently, and yet comes across as a little insincere? Or would you rather choose the one who dresses plainly and maybe stumbles a little bit when he or she talks, and yet comes across as trustworthy? Okay, compare your notes here. Okay, you guys know this was a total setup, right? I, th I think for most of us, hopefully, we probably choose the second choice each time. And that's because we know that character counts. Character counts in whom you hire, character counts in whom you follow, and character counts in who you choose to listen to. And it shouldn't surprise us that character counts as well for us as we are witnesses of Jesus Christ to people in our families, at our workplaces, this kind of thing. If we're the type of people who are known for our integrity, our friends and family members are more likely to hear us out. But on the flip side, if we come across as lacking integrity, we might provide someone with an excuse to dismiss what we say about Jesus. They're going to say, oh, see, all those Christians are just hypocrites. And we don't want that. So this morning, we're going to talk about becoming men and women of character people with integrity, or as I like to say, just becoming the real deal as we grow as witnesses for Jesus Christ. And we're going to take our lead by looking at the Apostle Paul. Now, uh, Paul was not perfect, and neither are we, but Paul at least knew that he wasn't perfect. Near the end of his life, he wrote what's known as 1 Timothy, and he refers to himself in there as the chief of sinners. Now, he wasn't perfect, but the passage we're going to look at today shows Paul to be a man of integrity, uh, someone who speaks with integrity, someone who acts with integrity. And we're going to learn from his example. But even beyond that, we're going to do something more 
because Paul's going to share with us a particular mindset that he has that motivates him to pursue a life of integrity as a witness for Christ. And that mindset that Paul adopts is something that we can tap into too as we're learning to grow in our Christian character. So uh, here's the question that I'm going to put down for us to chase down the answer to. How can we grow in our integrity as witnesses for Christ? Uh, We're going to look at Paul for the answer. We're going to look at his life. We're going to also look at this mindset that he adopts. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. And as you're turning over there to Acts 24, uh, here's what you need to know about the immediate context about what's going on in the book of Acts. Simply put, Paul is in jail again and on trial Again, this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time in the book of Acts. It kind of happens a lot, the last few chapters here. But even on trial, even when he's in jail, he shows himself to be a man of integrity. So we want to look at his example and learn from him. How can we grow in our integrity as witnesses? Well, the first thing we need to know is this, that a faithful witness speaks with integrity. People can tell where we stand by our words. So I'm going to read quite a few verses here out of uh, chapter 24. And there's two different speeches that are given here in the courtroom, okay? And as we read through, I just want you to listen for the contrast between these two speeches. One is from the prosecuting lawyer against Paul, and the other speech is by Paul himself in his defense, okay? Two speeches in the courtroom. Let's read these. Acts 24, starting in verse 1. It says, After five days... The high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought formal charges against Paul to the governor. When Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, We have experienced a lengthy time of peace through your rule, and reforms are being made in this nation through your foresight. Most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this everywhere and in every way with all gratitude, but so that I may not delay you any further... I beg you to hear us briefly with your customary graciousness. For we have found this man to be a troublemaker, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we arrested him. When you examine him yourself, you'll be able to learn from him about all these things that we are accusing him of doing. It says, the Jews also joined in the verbal attack, claiming that these things were true. Okay, that's speech number one, okay? Here's Paul's defense, verse 10. When the governor gestured for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know that you've been a judge over this nation for many years, I confidently make my defense. As you can verify for yourself, not more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. They did not find me arguing with anyone or stirring up a crowd in the temple courts or in the synagogues or throughout the city nor can they prove to you the things they're accusing me of doing. But I confess this to you, that I worship the God of our ancestors according to the way which they call a sect. Believing everything that's according to the law and that is written in the prophets, I have a hope in God, a hope that these men themselves accept too, that there's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the reason I do my best always to have a clear conscience toward God and toward people. After several years, I came to bring to my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings, which I was doing when they found me in the temple, ritually purified, without a crowd or a disturbance. 
But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who should be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these men here should tell me what crime they found me guilty of when I stood before the council, other than this one thing I shouted while I stood before them. I'm on trial before you today concerning the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's, that's the end of his speech there, okay? So let's uh, compare notes here and talk about these two speeches we just read. Okay, Paul's on trial in a Roman court, and the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem travel down uh, with their lawyer to make accusations, and Paul gives his defense. But I hope you see here there's a real contrast being set up between these two speeches here. In this first back and forth, this first interaction is going to show us that Paul, as a faithful witness, speaks differently than the lawyer. He's one who speaks with integrity. The lawyer? Not so much. Uh, but before we even look at their words in the speech, we need to read the room a little bit and understand what's going on there in the courtroom. Because there is a huge power imbalance between Paul and his accusers. It's right there in verse 1. It says, after five days, the high priest... Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought formal charges against Paul to the governor. So get this, on one side you have the Jewish high priest who is uh, perhaps the most influential leader among the Jewish, pop, Jewish populace, and he has this whole entourage of bigwigs with him, the Jewish leaders of the community, and then this famous lawyer. On the other side, you have Paul. He's got no standing in the Jewish nation, no entourage, no legal representation other than what he says. So this is not a fair fight. This is a stacked deck from the very beginning. And the attorney representing the high priest and his entourage starts. But there's something else we need to know as we start here. The translation that I'm using here uh, calls this guy Tertullus an attorney. Uh, but the actual meaning is something more along the lines of a professional public speaker or like an orator. So in other words, the spokesman for the Jews was a professional talker. Have you ever met a professional talker before? I mean, that's what he did. This guy got paid to write and make speeches to persuade people to do things. So we, presumably he must have been pretty good at what he does. But as we hear his speech, we, we find out that he's a little slick. Because in his speech, he's not straightforward, but he uses flattery, a lot of it actually, veiled threats, and some inflammatory language. So let's listen again. Let's analyze his speech here. The first part of his speech is laced with flattery towards this Roman governor. Okay, verse 2, he says, We've experienced a lengthy time of peace through your rule, and reforms are being made through your foresight. Most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this everywhere, in every way, with all gratitude. But so that I may not delay you any further, I beg you hear us briefly with your customary graciousness. Okay, this is dripping with honey. I mean, focus on, the focus is on just buttering up this Roman governor, right? We experienced peace through your rule. We got these reforms through your foresight. He calls them most excellent. Felix, this would have been a title, but still shows him honor. We don't want to delay you, take up your time, but hear us with your customary graciousness, right? Uh, this guy Tertullus is a sycophant, right? He's kissing up to this Roman governor and flattering him. And we have a little bit of reason to think that his flattery is insincere. Because uh, how did the, rolling, the ruling Roman authorities 
get along with the religious Jews at that time? Were they typically buddy-buddy? Not at all. There was this tenuous peace between the Romans uh, and the Jews that was held in place by the iron fist of Rome here. This is gunboat diplomacy. The Romans were the conquerors. The Jews were the conquered. And so typically the Jews uh, would resent the Roman rule and resent the Romans who'd taken over. And the Romans would often despise these backward Jews in this corner of the Roman Empire. So it's a little hard to swallow when Tertullus basically says, as the spokesman for the Jews, oh, most excellent Felix, we, your humble servants, we just love you so much. The way you rule over us, the reforms, oh, simply genius. We couldn't have done better ourselves. Thank you. We're so thankful for you and all that you do. I mean, this is flattery, right? You can see right through it. But there's more. If you listen to a speech, you can also hear a veiled threat within it. The specific threat that he's uh, hinting at is that of a riot, okay? Now, if you're in the ancient world, riots were a big deal. Uh, if you were in a backwoods corner of the Roman Empire, you couldn't just call up Rome in 24 hours and have troops on the ground here. Uh, so you'd have to watch things carefully in your area so you didn't lose your rule, you didn't lose your life, basically. And Tertullus, the lawyer, tries to exploit this particular fear with Felix. Now, I already mentioned that the relationship between the Jews and the Romans is a bit tenuous. And against that backdrop, notice the very first thing that he points out. He says, man, we really enjoyed a lot of peace under your rule up till now. Hint, hint, hint. Hey, guys, it's been really peaceful, hasn't it? I mean, doesn't that work out well for everybody? When we have some peace, it works out well for us. It works out well for you. But given the background tension between the Jews and the Romans, the hint is that how this lawsuit goes, maybe that lengthy time of peace could be coming to the end. I mean, you've got the Jewish rulers all right here. They got the puppet strings on the nation here. And so when this lawyer brings up specific accusations against Paul, he says, this is the guy who stirs up riots among all the Jews everywhere. Everyone knows about this guy. And Tertullus, like a good trial lawyer, he's crafting a narrative that he's trying to sell to the Roman governor. And this is his narrative. We're happy, grateful citizens. We love peace and we want to keep the peace. But he hates peace. He loves riots. And that's why we grabbed him. We want to continue being good citizens and keeping the peace, but we need your help. Hint, hint, hint. But again, the tools that Tertullus is using here, it's fear and this veiled threat of no more, no more peace from his clients if they don't get their way. That's not showing integrity. Now, the last aspect of Tertullus' speech that shows a lack of integrity is his choice of words. He chooses some inflammatory language, and this is a little fun to look at here. Verse 5, he says, uh, this is what the lawyer says. He says, we found this man to be a troublemaker. Okay, troublemaker, I don't know how, which translation you guys are using. That's not really strong enough to convey this. Okay, troublemakers like Dennis the Menace or Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. Okay, kind of cute. Oh, they're just a little troublemaker. But the word here actually means more like disease or plague. Uh, so you could say, as some English translations do, he is a pestilent fellow. I've never called anyone a pestilent fellow. But really, the tone is closer to that of saying, this guy's a menace to society. You got to take care of him. You can't just let him be. It's loaded language. 
Verse 5 also calls him a ringleader of a sect. Okay, both of those more loaded language. Why not just call him a leader? There's plenty of other words in the Greek language for this. Well, ringleader sounds a whole lot more threatening. I mean, you don't typically walk around Fairbanks and go, look, there's the ringleader of the local quilting club, right? Okay, it's, it's not that threatening. We'd say, ah, oh, that's the ringleader of the local mafia or something like that. And same thing with the word sect in verse five. Uh, this is loaded language. It doesn't come across so much in English, but it kind of has uh, the negative connotations that we would have of cult. Like, oh, that's a cult. It's a cult leader. And Paul actually points out that this lawyer is using some loaded language here when he later gives his defense in verse 14. He says, well, I worship the God of our ancestors according to the way which they call a sect. Okay, so he's pointing out that, boy, you didn't have to call it that. Um, But the bottom line here is that Tertullus is using flattery, threats, inflammatory language, and that's not showing integrity with his words. But Paul is going to be the contrast here. Instead of kissing up to the governor, Paul appeals to this governor's duty as a judge to, uh, to dole out impartial justice. He says in verse 10, because I know that you've been a judge over this nation for many years, I confidently make my defense. He doesn't go on and on talking about how wonderful Felix is and all the personal blessings he's gotten just because Felix, you know, he's right there. He keeps his intro short and sweet. And when he actually lays out his defense, he doesn't drop veiled threats. He just lays out the facts with some details. Verse 11, he says, As you can verify for yourself, no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So he gives them a precise timeline. Verse 17, he says, After several years, I came to bring my people gifts to the poor and to present offerings, which I was doing when they found me in the temple, ritually purified, Without, crossing, without a crowd or disturbance. Now, these things too would have been verifiable, especially since uh, you might remember a few chapters back when he went to Jerusalem, he had to pay for the purification ritual for his friends and for himself to have their hair cut off. Their heads were shaved. I don't know if that included their beards or not as well. So basically, it's been only 12 days or less since he's had his head shaved. And presumably, the Roman governor, Felix, is going to see that his hair looks a little bit different from the Jews' who are bringing him to court here. Uh, And so the point I'm making here is the evidence is right in front of the governor, even as Paul's speaking, that, yeah, he was ceremonially clean because he did this this right that he had to do. And part of Paul's just-the-fact speech, he openly admits that he follows Jesus as part of the way. This is what they called Christianity back then. And he openly admits that what he shouted out in the Sanhedrin. He's transparent about the things that he can't open up to. And these things show integrity. Now, uh, this last contrast of words between the lawyer and Paul is their difference of tone. Tertullus used inflammatory language. He got a little dramatic. But Paul keeps this cool. And and this was uh, perhaps the the facet of my study this week that was just tickled me when I noticed this, because I'd never seen this in Scripture before. But notice how Paul starts out his speech in verse 10. There's just a little clause there. It says, when the governor gestured for him to speak, Paul replied, and then he gives a speech here. He waited for the governor to give his hand signal or head nod or whatever. I kind of imagine there's a head nod here. But he waited his turn. Now, contrast that, this patient Paul waiting his turn with Tertullus the lawyer, 
He's a plague. He caused riots everywhere. We all know this is true. And the, the peanut gallery's back here go, yeah, we know it's true. It says they all joined in saying this is true. Paul's just kind of waiting here, you know, waiting until he gets the head nod or signal. And I almost wonder how long Felix waited. He's, he's seen all the drama on the one side here. And I, I, I wonder if he waited a bit to say, oh, is this guy going to just jump in the, the circus too and start shouting as well? Uh, but however long he waited... Uh, he gives him the signal to respond. Paul's nonplussed. He's calm. He doesn't resort to shouting or butting in or drama or loaded language or veiled threats or flattery. He waits his turn, lays out the facts because he speaks with integrity. That's the first contrast in this passage. A faithful witness speaks with integrity. We're meant to see these two speeches side by side. Well, here's the second contrast. And don't worry, this one's a lot quicker to get to. A faithful witness acts with integrity. And to see this contrast, we need to read the rest of the chapter here, the last few verses after Paul gives his speech. And this time, the contrast is not between Tertullus the lawyer and Paul, but it's between Felix the Roman governor and Paul. Uh, so let's read the last few verses of this chapter, starting in verse 22. It's after the two speeches. It says in 22, Then Felix, who understood the facts concerning the way more accurately, adjourned the hearing, saying, When Lysias, the commanding officer, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to guard Paul, but to let him have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Some days later, when Felix arrived with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. While Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for now. When I have an opportunity, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would give him money. And for this reason, he sent for Paul as often as possible and talked with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And because he wanted to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so this is what happens after the two speeches here. Basically, the Roman governor adjourns the case and says, hey, when this commanding guy comes down from Jerusalem, I'll decide the case then. But he doesn't actually do that because two years go by and he just keeps Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. So Felix, this Roman governor, is not a man of integrity and he makes it obvious with, for two reasons here. First thing, he perverts justice and keeps someone wrongfully imprisoned as a political favor, okay? As if that wasn't enough, he's spending that whole two-year period doing what? Trying to get a bribe out of Paul. Felix shows himself to be the classic corrupted politician. But in contrast, Paul shows integrity. What's Paul been doing in this chapter so far? Verse 11, he went up to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 17, he's bringing gifts to the poor. Of, among his people. He's presenting offerings to God. And perhaps most notably here, he faithfully testifies to Felix for two years straight over and over again without giving in to his hints for a bribe. And let me tell you, the Apostle Paul is no dummy here. He knows what's going on. And Felix is no uh, dummy either in that he can communicate what he wants to communicate to Paul. Oh, Paul. So remind me again, you were bringing a gift down to Jerusalem 
to present offerings to the, the poor. I guess you got that from a lot of your rich friends back in Thessalonica and in, in Ephesus. It's nice to have rich friends, isn't it? Paul's like rolling his eyes going, here we go again. Right? But a lot of time's passing. And maybe at some point, I don't know, but maybe the Apostle Paul thinks, well, of course all my brothers and sisters in Ephesus or Thessalonica or even Jerusalem, they'd be glad to help me out. It's for the gospel after all, right? I mean, if I'm out of this prison, I can tell more people about Jesus. I can plant more churches. What's the big deal about a little bribe? I mean, it almost sounds justifiable. But Paul determines he's not going to cave to bribery. Instead, he's going to trust God's timetable, God's sovereignty, and waits it out. And Paul shows by his actions that he's a man of integrity, and that makes him a credible witness before Felix, although Felix doesn't seem to come around. Chapter 25 is not the conversion of Felix. It's not in your Bibles, right? But a faithful witness acts with integrity even when it hurts, even when it costs him, even when it's two years in prison, a faithful testimony with no results. That's a testimony to his faithfulness. Now, uh, there's one last thing in this chapter of Acts that I want us to focus on as we wrap up here. I started out the sermon with a particular question, well, how can we grow in our integrity as witnesses for Christ? So far, we've just looked at Paul's example, the way that he speaks, the way that he acts. He acts with integrity. Suppose you could say, well, we can grow in our integrity just by copying Paul, right? Copy his example. Watch your words. Watch your actions. And to a certain extent, that is true, but I don't think that it's terribly empowering for us. I mean, easier said than done. I think we can find a little inspiration in Paul's example, but thankfully, Paul gives us something even more, something even better. He gives us insight to his own way of thinking, his mindset that motivates him to act and speak with integrity. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this mindset that Paul has is something that we can tap into too as we're learning to walk with Christ in our words, in our actions showing integrity. Because sometimes I think we need a little bit more than just a voice from the, the sideline going, try harder, do better, watch your mouth, be more like Paul, right? What is his secret? How can we grow in integrity as witnesses for Christ? Well, this is it. A faithful witness grows in integrity by keeping the big picture in mind. Uh, let's read a few verses, then I'll explain what I mean by this last one here. Look back at Paul's defense. In verse 14, this is where he kind of unlocks the lid and shows where his mindset is at. He says in verse 14, he says, I confess this to you that I worship the God of our ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is according to the law and that's written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, a hope that these men themselves accept too, that there's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the reason, okay, verse 16. This is the reason I do my best to always have a clear conscience toward God and toward people. Hey, Paul, why do you talk the way you do? Why do you act the way you do? He says, this is the reason. Because I actually believe this stuff. The law, the prophets, okay, that's kind of a short way of saying what's in the Bible. I actually believe that stuff written in the Bible, that God made us that we need a rescuer, that Jesus is that rescuer, and that I'm a witness for him. And someday you, me, we're all going to be judged. 
And there's going to be this resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of that, I do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and towards people. He knows that human history isn't random or meaningless or aimless. It's a story with a clear beginning, middle, and end. And Paul knows that in that story, his life's not his own. He's not here just to build his own little kingdom on earth, make himself happy. He knows that his life belongs to God. And his story, 50, 60, 70 years of it, however long it is, is just this longer, it's just this small subset in this bigger picture of what God is doing on the earth. It's a story that began before he was born. It's a story that's going to continue on after he dies. But it's this grander story that God has been writing and continues to write that, that spurs Paul on. It's these thoughts of eternity, God's big picture plan that fuels him to watch his words and his actions because he knows his life is a small part of the bigger story. So how can we grow in integrity as witnesses for Christ? We adopt Paul's mindset to be motivated to speak and act by considering how our words and our actions down here will be measured in light of eternity up here. I'll put it this way. Thoughts of eternity fuel our integrity. When we think about the big picture, what God is doing up here and how we fit into that, we will speak differently. We will act differently and it'll be more natural. I think this is better than just shouts from the sidelines saying, try harder, do better, copy Paul. Because adopting Paul's mindset gives us that motivation. Uh, that we need to live that out. Because we need to see our lives from the proper, proper perspective, not at 8,000% Zoom, as though my life down here is so, so important, but it's something much smaller but significant in what God's doing up here. We're going to want to choose to do our actions differently. We're going to want to choose to do, speak different words. Now, uh, let me give you a negative example of this from my own life. I wish the story were different, but it's not. But uh, it does illustrate what I'm talking about here. Uh, about three weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month ago, there was a man walking in my neighborhood with a dog. And it was a large breed dog. And this large breed dog left behind a large gift. And uh, when I saw what had happened, I was furious. And what made it even worse was the fact that it wasn't in our yard. It was right in our driveway where we walk to the mailbox, walk out to the street, drive over every day. And I thought, the nerve of this guy. So I, I ran and raved to myself. My eldest daughter comes down. I ran and raved to her. Can you believe what this guy did? My wife come down. I ran and raved to her, maybe a little quieter, because I know, because what she says is, well, uh, be careful. Uh, don't confront the guy because you're, you might lose your witness. Because I had talked about confronting him. You might lose your witness to him. Sure about Jesus. And as she spoke those words, I did not want to hear them. Uh, but that was the moment that God was calling me to consider the bigger picture of what he was doing. Maybe this guy wasn't a Christian. Maybe he needed to hear the gospel. Rather than zooming in on my own little life, like this was the biggest battle to get right. Well, I'm sorry to say that my uh, petty insistence on neighborhood doggy justice won out that day. Um, later, when I was walking my own dog around the neighborhood, I saw the same guy with his dog. I confronted him, 
And he owned up to doing it. He admitted he had no excuse. And I didn't shout at him. Uh, I didn't say everything I had in mind, but win the battle, lose the war. When I spoke with him, uh, it was clear that I was angry. And Holly was right. Any chance that I had to talk to him about Jesus had been lost, at least in that moment. And I'd taken to heart that nudge to consider the big plan of God's picture, his perspective. I could have chosen to speak differently or maybe not even at all. So I share this with you so you can learn from my mistake. Thinking of this bigger picture and our small but important part that we get to play in that bigger picture is going to shape our words and shape our actions. Uh, Practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we keep eternity in mind here? I got two quick suggestions for us. Uh, First one thing you might try to do is to pray the Lord's Prayer every day as you start your day as part of your prayer life, okay? Um, I've been doing this for uh, some years now, but particularly the first part where we say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed just means honored, right? That our lives are about honoring God and your kingdom come. That whatever's coming at me in my day, it's not about me and my priorities and what I want to accomplish and telling that guy not to let his dog do that in my driveway. Uh, It is about what God's doing here. And it's that daily recalibration that we can do to remind ourselves of, this is God's life. I've been entrusted with something here. And I I have a small but important part to play in the big picture here. I don't want to blow that. I've been praying this prayer for some time. Uh, Now, it didn't help me that particular day, but I can't say that it has helped me just as I think of like the ongoing things of life and and kind of what I'm striving for every day to kind of just put me back in my place and go, okay, what does God want here? What's he doing? What's going to bring him honor rather than myself? So that's suggestion one is pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, You know, hallowed be your name. Okay, my second and final thought is this. That's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it actually might be helpful to some of us to get us kick-started in thinking about eternity a little bit more often. And that's just put a written reminder of it in front of your face, okay? Now, uh, some of you might remember those WWJD bracelets, okay? I became a Christian in the 1990s. Somehow I missed that fad. I heard about it kind of after after the thing. But the idea of it was you'd wear this cool little rubber bracelet on there and say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that was supposed to affect your thoughts and your choices that you made. That's not a terrible idea, actually. But uh, here's my updated 21st, suggest- 21st century suggestion. Instead of what would Jesus do, why not take your 3D printer? I know some of you got one. Okay, I'm looking at Scott Matthews there. Or call up Oriental Trading Company and have a bracelet made that says, because eternity, okay? Kind of a, a kitsch 21st way of saying it, because eternity. I, kinda, I find it catchy. But in other words, in light of eternity, what do I want to say right now? In light of eternity, what am I going to do at this crossroads in my life? And if you don't want to wear a bracelet, that's okay. There's Sharpies out there. You can just write it on your palm. Sure, it'll, you know, wash off eventually. Or if you want to play it really safe, just do a post-it note. That's fine too. But however we do it, the idea is to put some reminder in front of your face to make the small decisions in light of eternity. Um, Again, uh, we want to consider our lives. It's this one small but significant part of this story up here. Uh, How do we want our words and actions to show us in the light of eternity? Uh, Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are 
working on mankind, that you have made us, that this is not an aimless, meandering story throughout eternity, but there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, that you stepped into human history, took on human flesh to die for our sins, you rose from the dead, that we could be witnesses to you, and that one day we will all be judged before you, uh, and one day there will be the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, Lord. Give us uh, wisdom and skill to see how our little lives fit into your big picture as we are witnesses to our family members, the people we work with, school, others, uh, and help us to be wise with our days and live well for you. But give us that motivation that comes from thinking about the big picture that you would be glorified. Uh, We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.